right, everybody, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your amazingly gracious host. Um, in case you're tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, smart people doing smart things. And uh, today we have one of the, one of the smartest. Um, say hello, Damon John. Oh, you were talking about me? Okay. <laughs> well, no, it was, yeah, it was just, uh, usually, usually I'm talking about myself, but, um, <laughs> but this time, this time I have to, I have to pass the buck over to you. Well, thank you for having me, man. <laughs> um, so for the sake of anybody who's ever, you know, who may be living under a rock, um, would you mind giving the, the, let's say the 92nd version of, uh, who Damon John is? Yeah, sure. Damon John is a, a young kid who started off in Jamaica, Queens, making a couple of tie top hats for uh, they almost look like ski caps for this up and emerging uh, music called hip hop and wanted to try to dress everybody to look like they were part of hip hop. And I created a company, FUBU, for us, by us. And um, I did that out of the frustration of feeling that we were buying clothes from people who really didn't respect our culture. It wasn't about a color. And I, many people thought that it ended up becoming purely because of a color. It wasn't uh, FUBU for us, by us. It's about a culture. And I went on after that to create a company that uh, did about $6 billion in global retail sales. I would then acquire other brands such as Coogee and Heather Red and Willie Esco. And then I got casted to be on a show called Shark Tank, where I now um, invest in other people's dreams. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be part of a, a cast of people called Sharks. And our job is to hopefully uplift and invest in everyday entrepreneurs and make them a little bit more powerful and stronger so they can go out there and empower others as well. That's uh, a pretty pretty uh, decent resume. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Uh, so uh, you touched on something pretty interesting, um, this idea of culture versus perception, I guess. Um, yeah. I, what have you learned, maybe just through the FUBU lens or just in general, right, about changing perceptions? Because I think that's a, a really good thing, you know, dealing with hip hop, especially, um, or any other area of culture where you have to translate it into, you know, billion dollar business is not just the, like you said, like a color. So um, if you could talk a little bit about that, that idea of like translating culture into movements and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good question. I don't really know if I've ever been asked that before, so I had to put some thought to it. But, you know, in regards to the perception, people all have, uh, obviously, a preconceived perception many times of what a color is, a culture, a person, an individual, a brand. And it takes a reinforcement of you to know, first of all, what are you after as a brand and or a person uh, to what are you trying to accomplish? And I always try to tell people, can they personally put themselves in two to five words? And then after that, if you have a brand or a company, can you put that in two to five words? And then when you when because if you don't know what you stand for, then you leave it up to other people to interpret. And Apple has always been think different. And Nike has always been just do it right. And FUBU has always been for us, bias. It just happened to be that the for us bias was misinterpreted. And that could be good or bad misinterpreted in various different ways. You know, a lot of the people would think that it was only for African-Americans. When it wasn't, it was for a culture that was sparked by the innovation in the music of African-Americans. But then people would think it's only for hip-hop. Then people would think it was only for New York City, only for Hollis Queens. So in some ways it worked, in some ways it didn't. But our job was to reinforce that. And in, in regards to perception, it's the same thing when you walk in a room and, you know, you walk in a room and say, nobody likes me because I'm black. 
well, you know what? Other people are going to say nobody likes me because I'm short. Nobody likes me because I'm, uh, I'm Jewish. Nobody likes me because I'm a female. Everybody's going to have their understanding and or their, uh, their perception of what you are. It's only you after that who has to reinforce who you really are. So I think that once I got onto Shark Tank, um, the perception of hopefully African-Americans, but definitely myself, has changed for the better. You know, people prior to that, thought that I was a FUBU guy. So I was going to walk into the room with baggy jeans on, gold teeth, and I start breakdancing and rapping, <laughs> right? Cool. But, I would love yeah, to see that. Exactly. First of all, I would just love to see that anyway. You just gave me an idea for a Halloween costume. <laughs> exactly. But when I walk in the room and they start to understand whether you're African-American and any of the sharks, whether you're African-American, female, whatever the case is, business is business. And being an entrepreneur is the ultimate equalizer. You need to know your numbers. You need to have your data. You need to wake up before everybody else, go to sleep after everybody else. They, they take the color aspect out of the room or the perception of hip-hop out of the room. They just start saying, this person is a business person. And hopefully – they then turn around and look at other people uh, that they may have had skewed perception of as just people and business people. So I say all that to say it really end of the day is going to be the perception is going to be about what you really walk into the room and bring with yourself. Well, I think also just as a, as an innovator, you know, kind of the theme of this show is like you always have something that's a little bit left field or different that you have to use the powers of persuasion to convince everybody that whatever you're talking about is gold. Um <laughs> You know? 100% because you know what, listen, if everybody agrees upon, agrees with what you're doing and what you're saying, then you're doing something wrong because you usually get the lowest common denominator, right? Uh, when everybody says, yeah, that's okay. But when you go in the room as an innovator, most of the room is not going to necessarily understand you, you know, and it's going to be your job to persuade them. Uh, you talk about this concept of two to five words and, you know, even fast forwarding a little bit to your book, you know, where you talk about this idea of constraint, right? The the ability to crunch something like some crazy concept that's in your head or, you know, a thing you've built into two to five words. And then, you know, or just the idea of constraint in your personal circumstances as a business person or as an individual um kind of talk about that a little bit and like your approach to constraint and, and even maybe in the context of power of broke but just in general would be great too yeah so you know and and to elaborate on that you know excess of anything is not necessarily going to bring bring you better results it actually can can, can confuse you you know uh, a lot of people don't realize that some of the one of the top reasons why small businesses and startups fail is usually overfunding. It's not the fact that they had uh, enough, uh, they didn't have enough cash. They actually had too much. They went out and instead of taking, you know, $1,000 and $2,000 and taking an affordable step and then learning from that step and then, uh, you know, proceeding and taking another $2,000 and proceeding in the, the next step and going out and getting strategic partners around you, finding an audience that believes in you. And revamping or twerking your tweaking your idea, not twerking. You don't want to twerk your idea. You could. This, is, this goes back whole, to your breakdancing um, and gold teeth. <laughs> <laughs> whole, whole nother business, <laughs> right? But um, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, but but a lot of people go out there and take a hundred thousand dollar loan or raise, uh, you know, two hundred thousand dollars, and they go out and they make the same exact mistakes, but with 
$100,000, when then you lose faith in the people who have invested in you, you may have even blown your credit. You may have $100,000 worth of bad inventory that has mold on it or, or poorly made because you didn't get to master what you were doing on a small scale and replicate it. And people don't understand it. So you have to have that constraint. You have to make affordable mistakes. You can't try to grow a business and, uh, you know, and scale it to a million dollars in one year. You need to understand what it's going to take to scale the businesses. So you really must find a way to use all the resources that are within your fingertips to then grow the company out and outward and outward and outward. Uh, by the way, I just wrote down the idea of networking. So it's like a you know, network. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ne- yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so um, that's that's one, that's one of my personal dreams. So if you want to fund it, let me know. Um, no, I, I think you touched on something else, which is maybe there's a psychology of money. You know, I think m- most founders may have never encountered a million dollars like all at once or a hundred thousand dollars all at once. And I think, you know, have, have has that sort of thought crossed your path or that sort of, you know, uh, something in there where. The, the way a person perceives money versus or our team, the way the team perceives money versus what it should versus what the power of the money actually is. Absolutely. You know, listen, you don't know what you don't know. And to sit there and think that somebody knows what they would do with a million dollars, you really don't know. And we see that all the time, because if you look at people like lotto winners and athletes, you know, three years out of the league, uh, over 65% of them are bankrupt. It's because when they've gotten in this huge influx of capital, they didn't know um, you know, what to do with it. And I made that same mistake. So I wrote The Power Broke because I noticed that the people that use The Power Broke more than anybody else are the people that have a level of success or wealth. And when I made my biggest mistakes, it was when I had money. And it was long after I had originally had money. I lost some of it. So then I decided to invest some more of it. And one of my biggest uh, mistakes and learning lessons, and the reason I wrote the book, is because when I purchased a company called Heatherette, um, I then went and invested $6 million into Heatherette. Now, after the $6 million was gone, I realized the mistakes I made. The mistakes I made was that I knew the brand and it was a good brand and they were getting a lot of free advertising because they were just like we were FUBU guys uh, just hitting a different market a couple of years later. And I knew that there was people who really wanted this brand. So what did I do? I put in half a million dollars every runway show, you know, seventh on sixth runway show, fashion show, which it could have been 50,000. I then went and took out big advertising and magazines. I also went and hired those big agencies and all those things when if I would have just rolled up my sleeves and gotten into the business, I can't say I would have succeeded, but I would have lost a half a million dollars instead of six million dollars. I would have lost a half a million in one year instead of six million over two years because I would have failed fast and I would have learned from my mistakes. And, and I just didn't know any better. Um, and that's why I wanted to share with people, don't make the mistakes that I made because I fortunately enough had enough money to recover from it and I had other businesses that brought in future capital. But if that was all that I would have ever had, I would have had nothing else after that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, a lot of it also just is, sounds like understanding risk management. And I, one of the things I read that I thought was really interesting uh, about the birth of FUBU was, and correct me if this is if this is not uh, true, but um, your mom put up uh, her mortgage to to fund a, a stage of development for the business. Is that correct? 
Yes, yeah, so absolutely. So my mother and I, we were, we were um, you know, we were working on, well, of course, we had a house and we were, I was working on this house about 10 years old. I, you know, I was putting in like my little um, five cents a month, whatever I could. And as I grew older, I, I would, uh, my mother and I was with the responsibilities of the mortgage. But when I finally went out and I had $300,000 in orders, um, I came home to my mother. I got turned down by 27 banks because I really didn't know how to fill out a, a, a loan. I didn't know anything about financial statements. I didn't know anything about proper projections or anything like that and scaling and distribution. And she said to me, she said, you know what? We have money in this house. Now, I wouldn't normally do this, but if you really have $300,000 in orders, you're going to need to get those orders out to everybody. And if you don't get those orders out to the stores, they're never going to trust you again. But $300,000 in orders, let's go and take out as much equity as we can in this house. And let's uh, let's uh, you, you go sell all the clothes and you put the money back in the house. So my mother, even still to that, till then, she would never lend me any money prior to that. She would say, you got to go out and do what you have to do. And so I don't want to look, I don't want it to seem like she was just like, yeah, sure. Here you go. Um, <laughs> right. you, you know, so we did that. And that was still a risk, her taking that risk. And and then the to, to say something else about that is we got a hundred thousand dollar mortgage on a house. I have no idea how the house was worth seventy five thousand. So I, I that's a whole nother story. Right. Mama was a hustler. Um, that's 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 mom, all. <laughs> mom was a hustler. Right. Um, but the hundred thousand dollars that we had, I turned around. And I ended up a year later, I was five months late on the mortgage and I was um, I only have five hundred dollars left in the bank because I didn't have financial intelligence. And it goes back to exactly something that you and I were talking about, constraint and or just having a level of financial intelligence. I wasn't spending the money foolishly. I just didn't know what I was doing. So I was paying for raw goods 90 days ahead of time. Right. Then I was paying for salaries, staff, uh, fabric shipping. And when I would sell to a store, I was giving them terms. I wasn't in the position to give them terms. So they would, they would pay me 30, 60, 90 days. It wasn't like I took the money. I went and bought a car with it. I was just trying to operate the business. And I, I almost lost that entire business, even when I was doing what I thought was the right thing. Uh, this all sounds like a brutal beginning to to, to the Damon oh John God. we all we all know today. So you know, when did you kind of like when did the bug turn on for you? You know, now as a serial entrepreneur and investor, uh, you know, when did the bug go like ah, th- like I'm gonna just keep flipping these like houses or like you know w- when did that start? Well, it's it started. It all started at an early age. It's just that you don't get this. Nobody comes one day and and hits you with this magic wand and everything is uh, understood at the time. So you look at that point in my life where I I had made that $100,000 potential mistake. I was already half educated in doing business. I was I was making my mistakes small. I went out there, I proved my concept like I was talking about. I didn't do you know, I didn't go out and take a $100,000 loan with nothing. So the hundred thousand dollar loan came after I closed Fubu down three times from eighty nine to nineteen ninety two because I, I ran out of a thousand, two thousand, four thousand dollars, and I kept coming back. I kept coming back. That did a couple of things. Number one, that made sure that I learned my mistakes small. Number two, it made sure that if I reopened the business, I opened it because I had a true passion. I wasn't, you know, and I had already tried to start plenty of businesses before then that I realized I was in it for the wrong reason. I wanted fame or I wanted money. So those things made me come around to that point. Now I start putting all the hard work with little to no capital. I get $300,000 in orders. 
now I have to learn financial intelligence. I don't need to learn discipline anymore, and I don't need to learn um, uh, about proving the concept. Now I need to know financial intelligence. And we all got to keep learning. So I just kept learning every single day, every single year to get to this point. And then I would make way more other mistakes, like I share with you. I get to a certain point, I lose $6 million, right? I get to a certain point, FUBU goes down. I get to a certain point, FUBU goes up. So it's, it's a constant process. Nobody just comes and just goes bling and blesses you with this great massive uh, amount of knowledge. How do you keep uh, internal peace through all, all those ups and downs? Um, I think by keeping like I've always had uh, like minded people around me that had the same exact agenda uh, for the uh, same exact uh, goals and results and the same reasons. You know, um, earlier on, you know, people sometimes don't realize why partners are around. Partners may be around because they want to party all the time or they want a certain time of fame or they want a certain amount of money. Nothing's wrong with that unless you're not on the same page, but you think the other person is. And, and that really is about everything from business to personal life. You can't have a partner in a marriage also that has different goals, right? So I kept, I kept a lot of people around me with the same agenda, my partners. I also also uh, would go out and seek mentors. Till today, I still go out to seek new and uh, more advanced mentors in different areas of life, whether it's a spiritual mentor, whether it's business mentors or anything else like that, uh, you know, maybe about eight years ago when Shark Tank was first really getting going and I started to want to do different type of marketing besides urban marketing, I went out and, and called on a gentleman named Jay Abraham that many people may know from his history of being one of the most uh, innovative thinking thinkers when it comes to marketing over the past 40, 50 years. And I asked him, can he mentor me? And I asked, how can I repay him? And is there any way that I could help mentor him in different aspects? So I would say mentors uh, help me keep my stability, strong family and uh, my faith. And, uh, of course, uh, people with uh, like-minded goals ahead of us. That's amazing. Um, and especially like these mentor moments, right? Yeah, I think that goes both up and down, right? You're finding people who are smarter or better at you at certain things that you want and kind of just fueling this constant personal education around business and, and life. Um, but I also know that you're part of the PAGE program um, under President Obama. Which is for, for the audience, it's the, the President's, uh, was it Pre President's Ambassadors for Global Entrepreneurship. Um, Correct. And you and I had a brief conversation um, at Stanford this year around that. But I would love if you could just kind of let the audience in on what the PAGE program and also like why you're you know involved and passionate about it. Yeah, so definitely one talking about mentors, and I think there's a, also another thing to mention about mentors. Let's not always think that mentors are going to be older and more sophisticated than us. You know, there are some mentors that are probably work, listening now to to us, and there are some people who need mentorship because there's a 16-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid in your office or in your life who knows how to convert and or operate social media where, you know, there are a massive amount of people becoming millionaires just off their smartphones. So a mentor is not necessarily going to be somebody older than you. It's going to be somebody you can learn from. Um, but if you look at the ambassadorship program, presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship program, it's gonna, we're going to call it page ambassadors. It's myself and 20 other amazing individuals who are entrepreneurs from all around the world. You have Steve case who created AOL. You have Brian, um, who created Airbnb, the gentleman who created the Kind Bar, Tori Birch, um, and Julie Hahn, who's done over $100 million in 
micro loans all around the world. And we're talking about people who need who live in the Sudan who need twenty dollars. Right. Um, and the reason why President Obama and um, uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Prisco in the White House have uh, appointed us is because we have three obligations as presidential ambassadors. I went to Kenya with the president. I've also uh, went with him to his trip in Cuba. And the reason why is because entrepreneurship is very empowering. And there are a lot of people around the world who don't necessarily understand or grasp entrepreneurship. Now, entrepreneurship is not something new. People have been bartering and trading from the beginning of time. But now you have this title of entrepreneurship. So our job to, is to do this, to go into places like uh, Kenya and speak to people who, uh, if a man or woman can't make $10 a week to feed their family and keep the lights on um, you know, in, in, in certain areas where, where it's very challenging, then there are a lot of people and or individuals out there who who want to prey on the fact that these people don't have faith and don't have hope and they're in dire need. And they'll go out there and they'll have these individuals go and do some things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of all of us. So whether you're in Compton and somebody wants you to wear a color for the wrong reason or do something else. So we want to go out there and we want to show people that there are ways to pick up your cell phone and or to buy something at 10 cents and sell it at 20 and be able to feed your family. So first of all, we want to inspire them. Second of all, we want to show them how to get access to capital, how to find out about things like Kiva, where Julie Hahn has done over $100 million in loans, micro lending, or access to capital in various different ways. And when they get the capital, how to do the right things with it. And number three, in the event they get the capital and they figure out something to do really well, how do you scale? How do you find strategic partners? How does the government help uh, give you further education and access to further mentors and things like that nature? And when we do that, we find that those type of people go out there and they don't become what we may consider liabilities anymore. They become taxpayers. They become more mentors and teachers and they help all around. And 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 the amazing thing is when we saw each other out there is when you meet most of these people from even uh, from domestically and around the world. Their agenda never really is to make money. It's usually to change other people's lives in some way or another. And that, I think, in return, inspires us. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you about that, too. It's just, you know, I think t uh, when you teach, you learn, you know, and it, it may yeah. be an emotional lesson. It may be like a tactic, you know, a tactical lesson. Um, what's, what are some of the inspirations that you've personally walked away with from encountering these entrepreneurs from all over the world? Uh I, you know, we don't really have enough time to go over how much I've inspired or I've been brought to tears. I'll give you an example. I was, I was speaking the other day in um, Ohio, Toledo, Ohio, and a friend of mine that I met, I met four years earlier decided to come visit me. Now, this friend of mine lives in Flint, Michigan, and we know what's going on over there. Uh, I met him one day because he came to my speaking engagement. I saw him on Twitter a couple of times. Well, the story behind him, his name is Eric Thomas. He has a, he has a clothing company called Inspire. 19 years ago, Eric was hanging outside of a club and he got hit by a straight bullet. He's a quadriplegic at this moment uh, now and from, from that point on. Um, it takes Eric four hours to get up in the morning, get ready to uh, go to work. It takes him four hours to go to bed. He's only had one vacation in the last 19 years and it was when I flew him out the Shark Tank. 
to come see us. So when I look at a man like Eric, who is out there trying to inspire other people, and he doesn't have the use of any part of his body besides mainly one of his wrists and his neck, and it takes him that amount of time to get up uh, to go to work, and he hasn't had days off unless I forced him to ask him to come see Shark Tank um, being shot. I look at the people who are out there who say, I can't get another pair of shoes or a color television. And I think of people like Eric who was out there trying to change the world the days that I, I may have my half a millisecond of feeling sorry for myself. I'll then go over to Kenya and I'll see somebody or talk to somebody who's you know, uh, out there trying to bring fresh drinking water to a lot of people, and that's all they can care about. Or I, I'm, I'm, or, 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 or I remember seeing President Bush. He was speaking one day, and he said that you know a lot of people gave him his challenge, you know, problems about why he tried to uh, support Africa so much. But he said he was giving out a bag of rice or flour one day, and this one kid said to him, "God is good." And he said, wow, this kid's really cheerful. And, he, you know, and, and he's living in these 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 challenging times. And the person next to him said. That kid's family got butchered by a, a tribe last week. He saw his parents literally butchered. So when I when I when I see these things around the country and hearing about how good we have it and and the obstacles we think are obstacles in life. It just it just is empowering to see other people out there who are trying to just they they're, they're trying to dedicate themselves to changing the entire world. That, that those two you're right. We don't have enough time to go over all of them, but those I mean those yeah. are two amazingly like powerful powerful stories. Um, you know, there's a there's a other side to it too, right? Where you know at least when you're going globally and looking at entrepreneurship. Um, there is policy that changes, you know, that's kind of, uh, I would imagine some of that comes from the white house. I know John Kerry gave a really good opening talk at the global entrepreneurship summit, um, as, as well as what it does for the economy. Can you talk about that intersection of like policy and, you know, and, um, economic change that either stems from the work that you've seen, or at least from your involvement in the page program? Yeah, hundred percent. So, you know, um, we, as we met people around the country, policies have changed. So you look at places like India, where you know the the, the level of indentured servants and slavery still exists to some some ex, uh, extent. Where you know somebody who borrowed a hundred dollars now their family is enslaved. And when you look at at entrepreneurship, where you start to see capital coming into the markets for various reasons, and especially when you look at places like Afghanistan, where women for the most part weren't uh, was shunned upon and they weren't supposed to work. And you look at things like domestic violence is obviously uh, heightened due to the lack of uh, money coming into the home, where now I've met two or three women who have now opened up their own little factories and things of that nature in places like Afghanistan, where uh, uh, they are starting to change the laws and and realize that they should allow uh, the team uh, of women to participate. I start seeing women who I, there's one woman, for example, she was having a she was having a challenge with uh, her her husband and she's being abused and domestic violence was was running rampant in her life. And now she has a factory with uh, 20 other women um, and they make sarongs, hand woven sarongs. And now her husband is sweeping up the factory. And if he wants to stay employed, he better not put his hands on her, you know, and right. uh, it's empowering to see stuff like this. So you go to Cuba 
And, um, you know, the, you know, whatever has happened in Cuba politically, it's not my position, you know, but we know many people know that the Cuban people have suffered and a lot of the people in power have not necessarily have suffered because of an embargo over the years. And now you look at uh, people becoming hosts and opening up 4,000 Airbnb uh, homes and they're becoming entrepreneurs in their own sense and versions of Uber going out there and Carnival Cruise Line has now opened up, uh, are opening up ports to Cuba and where are people going to stay when they want to get up the ship and maybe hang out for a little while and it's starting to change in regards to policies too when people start empowering themselves and if the country has 3% of internet or 5% of internet, and now it goes up to 15 and 20%, it's going to let them communicate more. And we look at people like like Cuba, when a crisis goes on like Ebola, they have some of the smartest doctors in the world there because they concentrate on 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 on, on medical training and med uh, medicine. And they go out and they then go help cure and help other global issues. So it just all around starts to manifest and starts to build and snowball. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you know, just looking at your journey from uh, knit caps to the White House, um, what, <laughs> you know, what sort of your, I don't know, your central personal mission? Like what, what have you, or have you defined that yet? Um, where, where do you stand on that? Um, well, my central mission has grown over the course of years. I mean, I don't know. You know, listen, my kids, uh, they already know they want to change the world at a young age. I didn't really realize that. And as, I, as I've grown, I've gotten to witness and see so much. My, my mission is a couple of things. Number one, I want, to, I want to, of course, reduce gun violence take a lot of, and find ways to take a lot of these illegal guns off the streets that are killing our, our youth. I want to try to and – I, and I want to try to do a lot of things, so hopefully I, I can accomplish one of them, right? I want to – I I I, am, I want to save our planet because of the the, the the clean drinking water and our oceans, and um, I want to find a way to educate and give financial intelligence and a lot of type of economic intelligence to our minorities and our youth, uh, so that we can change, as we talked about earlier, the perception. You know, the perception of what a young African American, Latino, or or Caucasian youth is to reduce the probabilities of whether gun violence or whether police violence or whether gang violence and things of that nature. I really, you know, and anything that I can do to help in all those different aspects, I just start and I do little by little to grow, just like I look at entrepreneurship. Because if I'm going to sit back here and say, well, in another five years, I'm going to retire and dedicate myself all to that. I may get hit by an ice cream truck tomorrow and not do anything, right? So I got to start here and there every place that I can and just keep applying and hopefully start to uh, address a lot of those agendas that I have. Yeah, so you, you have you have small goals. That's 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 you got you got to start some <laughs> baby steps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, do you do you feel like you, you mentioned that getting hit by a, a truck? I, like I I kind of woke up today with like a, in a little bit of a cold sweat. Like I want to hurry up and get some stuff done. Like, do you feel a sense of urgency about you know those those missions? Like, th- does it kind of like yeah. you feel it in the pit of your stomach? I feel I feel a sense of urgency in almost any aspect of things I do, but it's not the urgency to accomplish this. It's the urgency to get started. And once I get started, I feel a sense of urgency of continue. Um, because if we always think that it must be absolutely completed, well, I'm never going to consider myself the best dad ever. Right? Uh, it's not going to be one day that I'm going to go, all right, I made it as a father. It's going to be ongoing, and I, I I have a I have a, a six month old now, so I'm starting life again over in that aspect. Uh, Congratulations! So number one, well, thank you very much. I'm very very happy about that. Thank you. But uh, um, 
I have an urgency. And why, I think, because anybody listening to us that is, I don't know, 25 or over, how many times have you been shocked when you start to hear about how many people in your life has passed for various different reasons, whether it's cancer or whether it's death by something else? Life is not promised. But so we all we all can't have this theory of, well, one day I'll get to it. There'll never be, you know, the perfect time. It'll all be the perfect use of time. So I I just try to put in as much as I can on any and all aspects to start it. Then it's to keep it going. And then, of course, it is to accomplish it and do a great job at it. Uh, well, speaking of time, thank you for for spending yours with, with us today. A um, couple more things be- as, as we wind down. Thank you. Um you know, kind of take in all the things you've seen, which, you know, globally, domestically, you know, the companies that you're involved in, the companies you may have passed up, like, you know, just experiences you've had in life. And uh, I'm curious as to what Damon John's current innovation crush is. You know, what have you seen in the world that you think is amazing that you're just like, ah, that's, that is, that is the thing. That's that. Um, I, uh, I don't know if there's one thing with this, but there's two or three areas that I really find fascinating. I find this direct model of creating a membership in a community the same way that you and I are on here right now and you have a community that, that, that loves to be educated by you. I find that fascinating. I find that extremely empowering. You know, there was, you know, in the past it was make it, they will come and sell them whatever you want. And now People have this freedom and this transparency to do whatever they want, and they have the way to get empowered. So whether it is listening to a podcast or whether it is getting something delivered by the Honest Company to you every single month because you, you're you a member of this company and you just don't want to uh, look out of the way because you know, you know they're going to provide you something or medicine or medical tech. I, I love this subscription model and this ability to really talk to your con- customers and get their feedback and give them feedback. Um, I also love how um, technology is starting to be added to everyday aspects of life, such as apparel and such as our electronics and things of that nature. This can help us become healthier. So whether you're wearing some kind of uh, shirt that you know your sweat is now being broken down and telling you your deficiencies or what you need or whether the you know you're rubbing something against your head and electronically showing you and breaking down your body and, and letting you lead a healthier life, I think that now that you know now you can't blame but so many other people if you're being advised on what is needed for your body that means that you are making a conscious choice to ignore it or a conscious choice to solve it and i i I like those aspects of what's going on today that's fantastic um last but not least yeah take a deep breath to think about networking um (laughs) and uh complete this phrase for me innovation to me is hmm Innovation to me is, am I supposed to get one word or a couple words? But whatever comes to, what's in your heart, Damon? Yeah, innovation <laughs> to me, innovation to me is to effectively empower and change people's lives. That's great and well well stated. Um, where where uh, where can people find you? Um, you know, where, where on the interwebs? Where do you want people to go and connect with you? Um, let, let us know where to find you. Uh, uh, no, you know what? My book tour is over, but they can always find me on ABC Friday nights at 9 p.m. I'm always there on Shark Tank, and I usually do a live broadcast on my um, 
Facebook right after that. And all of my Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Insta, whatever, whatever, uh, networking address will be uh, at the shark Damon. My name is spelled Damon, like Raymond with a D. Very cool. Um, well, thank you for joining us. This has been great. I appreciate your time. This is, uh, I had a great time. I appreciate it. And I love the questions, man. I mean, I get asked the same crap all the time and you did not ask me the same crap. So I, I appreciate I that, man. I try not to ask crap. Uh, so that's one thing I, <laughs> I don't do um, I, when I'm doing my job well. But everyone, thank you for tuning in. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush and we will talk to you next time.